Go ahead and open up your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be in verse 16. I normally don't like opening service with a joke, but I got to admit that while I was studying this week and going through this passage, uh, I, a, a joke just pa- popped in my mind from like back in the old days, and some of you might already be familiar with it, but please, just out of courtesy for me, laugh anyways. Uh, I would appreciate that. There's a reason why I'm, not, I'm a pastor and not a comedian as uh, this is not my calling in life by any stretch. But anyway, so the the way the joke goes is there's this guy, uh, this particular guy loves cats. I'm going to name this guy John, and uh, all all similarities between John Fun and this joke are just, you know, by happenstance, no connection whatsoever. But this guy, John, just loves cats, has a cat, and it's going on vacation and needs somebody to watch it. So he calls his brother up, and it's like, hey, bro, you know, how's it going? Uh, good, you know, and they have the real conversation. It's like, hey, I got a favor to ask. You know, I, I'm going on vacation, and I need you to watch my cat. And uh, so John's little brother's like, oh, absolutely, brother, bring it on over. You know, drop the cat off. And so John brought the cat over, dropped him off, went on vacation. And, you know, halfway through vacation, he decided to call and check up and see how his cat's doing. So he called his little brother and was like, hey, bro, how, uh, just call and see how things are going. How's the cat? And his little brother says, uh, well, your cat's dead. And uh, John's just like horrified. Oh my goodness, my cat's dead? I mean, we all know how much Johns love their cats, right? And so he's just, he's beside himself. And after a moment of getting over the shock of having his cat, knowing his cat's dead, he, he's like, oh, he started getting angry. It's like, how could you tell me my cat is dead in such a heartless way? How could you possibly do that? And uh, his little brother was like, well, what would you, what should I have done? You know, I'm just telling you how it is. And John was like, well, you know, maybe on the first day I'd call and you'd say, uh, you know, how's the cat? And, and you could say, well, the cat's up on the roof. And, uh, you know, we're trying to get it down. And then I'd call back the second day and say, hey, how's, how's the cat doing? And say, well, you know, went up on the roof. We were trying to get it down. And, uh, you know, the cat fell off the roof and uh, brought it to the vet. And then, uh, then I'd call back the next day and you can say, well, John, I got some bad news about your cat. Your cat didn't make it. The vet did all he could, and the cat passed away. And so uh, the little brother's like, okay, okay, John, sorry about that. Uh, you know, I'll try to do better next time. So then uh, John asks his little brother, you know, trying to move on to another topic, says, so, so how's Grandma doing? He's like, little brother says, well, she's up on the roof. I told that joke to my kids and my family this week and said, is that appropriate for church? They weren't sure either. And since they didn't say no, I figured I'd go ahead and share it. And Eunice's, the first question out of her mouth was, what on earth is that going to have to do with your message? And uh, that's going to be my job is try to make a little connection here. But the the, the reason I told that joke is because uh, Jesus had some news for his disciples that I believe was very difficult news to be able to convey and share with them. And I think they, on the other end of that, being the recipients of that difficult news, might have had a hard time processing that. And might have even wished that Jesus would have taken a couple of days to say what he did in this passage and said it a little bit more easily. And so hopefully you've opened up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. And you might remember that this 
a passage we're reading today is a continuation of what John Fund had uh, preached on last week and shared with us. And he did a great job. I really appreciated uh, my brother John sharing. And uh, he was talking about how Jesus commissioned his disciples. How Jesus, uh, in verse 1, it was really interesting. He said, he said, Jesus called his disciples. And then verse 2, it said, and the apostles' names were. So verse 1, they were disciples. Verse 2, they were transitioning to something a little bit different. They were apostles. And apostles means sent. Sent one. Sent on a mission. They were being sent with uh, authority. They were the representatives of Jesus as they went. And so this was a major transformation in their growth, in their maturing as, as when they first came to Jesus and started following him to now being those who are sent. And uh, John talked about that and explained it in really great ways. And one of the things he had mentioned was how, uh, how this had like a telescoping effect, a telescoping effect. So even though it, uh, it had uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples, the apostles, and that group for that time and place. There was implications that grew out that were true for all Christians of all times. And I'm arguing that same thing today in this passage, even though Jesus is talking to his disciples, the apostles, as he's commissioning them on this missionary journey that they are going on, that it bronze out and is, is applicable and is true for all Christians in all times and places. And so Jesus gave the disciples authority. He told them to go as his representatives. He called them to, uh, to go and preach the kingdom, that the kingdom was drawing near. He told them, go and you will do miracles. You will heal the sick, cast out demons. You will raise the dead. Imagine someone telling you, you will go and raise the dead. Might be a shocker. Yeah, absolutely. They were called to do things that the religious elite of their day and all the days preceding them, were not able to do. Can you imagine that? Uh, most theologians, I think, when we look at the disciples, think that they were younger men. Uh, there's some conjecture involved within that. But I can only imagine what young men being told in chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, about all this power and authority in this mission that God is calling them to, how it would be very difficult not to let that go to their heads. I can only imagine the disciples giving each other high fives and being like, yeah, we're, we're top dogs now. You know, who's laughing at who now, guys? Who's casting out demons and raising the dead now? I can't help. I'm, again, I'm just kind of imagining here, but it's not so far off to, to think. We know that some of Jesus' disciples struggled with pride and arrogance. James and John, for instance, you know, went to Jesus and was like, hey, can we be the greatest? And I can only imagine that this passage in verses 1 through 15 played into them and that desire to be the greatest and having the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, to go into the world and bring this message of the gospel. And if any town did not receive them, they were told to dust off their shoes, dust off their sandals rather, and uh, that it would be harsher on that town uh, than it was on Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of power and authority to give to his disciples, don't you think? And yet, in verse 16, Jesus says, behold. Hold on, guys. Look, I got something for you. And we're going to read Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through, 25, or 16 through 25. Before we do that, though, please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word, that it is truth and that it is life itself. God, I pray that you will open up your word, that your spirit will enlighten the truths that lie within it. 
and that you will help us to apply them to our lives uh, so that we will not sin against you and so that we can uh, enjoy you, Lord, and the blessings that you have laid up for us in this life to enjoy you in our relationship with you and this life hereafter, God. May you be glorified in all that we do today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25, persecution will come. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his, master, or his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm going to slow down that sentence a little bit. Kind of do a little slow motion sentence interaction. Again, imagining what the disciples are thinking as Jesus is transitioning from, from last week when John was talking about 1 through 15 and all this power and authority they were given and then this behold, something's changing, something's different. It's not what you think. Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out. And the disciples are probably like, yeah, yeah. You know how you like filling in the blank sometimes in your head when people are talking? Fill in the blank. What would they have filled, filled in the blank? I am sending you out as, it's like that game where you like have a sentence and it's like fill in a noun, an adjective, a verb. You know, if you would have filled, and it says like fill in an animal here, what would the disciples or what would you fill in in that blank? I am sending you out as fill in the blank. I don't know what the disciples would have thought. I think they thought that they were top dogs in these previous verses, so they might have been like sending you out as top dogs now. You know, you have authority, you have power to heal the sick and raise the dead and preach the kingdom. So it might have been a little bit surprising when Jesus said, I am sending you out as sheep. Okay, still going in a little slow motion here. Oh, sheep. Oh. I remember back in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 23, Jesus talked about sheep. This isn't so bad. Oh, you mean like Jesus. You mean like those sheep that, oh, uh, was it? Uh, how does Psalm 23 go again? Is it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You make me lay down in green pastures. You leave me beside still water. Okay, this whole sheep thing isn't too bad. Is that the kind of sheep you're thinking? And Jesus is like, kind of, but not all of what you're thinking. 
Go one more verse down in Psalm 23 where it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. You can kind of see maybe as they're interacting with this, you will be sheep. What Jesus is actually saying might be unfolding in their heads and in their minds. So the disciples are thinking, sheep amongst wolves, I thought we were top dogs. Now all of a sudden, we are the sheep and they're the top dogs, maybe? Without being too graphic, I think all of you have watched National Geographic and know what wolves do to sheep. Scripture doesn't tell us what all led up to Judas betraying Jesus. We know that money had something to do with that. But I can't help but think that teachings like this had some wedge impact on Judas and his life and separating him from the truth that Jesus was teaching. This is hard news to take. You will be like sheep among wolves. Sheep among wolves. Hold on. So, Jesus, if I was a sheep, uh, if it was just like a wolf among sheep, all I have to do is not be the slowest sheep. I don't have to be the fastest. I just have to be faster than the one slowest sheep that's here, you know, in the church. But that's not what you're talking about. She's like, no. What you're saying is that sheep amongst wolves, like, like we're all got targets on us. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. Practically, what Jesus is saying is if you are my disciples and you go where I send you and you are my witnesses, even though you have all this power and authority, because you have all this power and authority, you will be persecuted. This is a non-negotiable certainty in the Christian life. And I would argue that this is true for all Christians of all times, though maybe perhaps to varying degrees. And so, if you're taking notes or you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a couple of verses. 1 Peter 4.12 I'm not going to give you a whole lot of time, so I hope you're fast. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved. It's kind of ironic that he starts with beloved. He's saying, those that I love. Peter, who's an expert, I think, in, in persecution. He knows what this means. We are told uh, in the church tradition that Jesus, or Peter was uh, crucified similar to Jesus. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, don't be surprised. You should not be surprised. I should not be surprised. We should not be surprised at what? At the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you're not being persecuted, that's strange. That is strange. If you are being persecuted, that is not strange. Not persecution is strange Persecution is not strange. Do you think we have that reversed and flip-flopped a little bit in our thinking in the church, perhaps? Yeah. It's easy when, when persecution and those trials come on us that we're like, God, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Peter's like, don't be surprised. We should, we should say after we read God's word, I know what you are doing. I know exactly what you are doing. Because Jesus did not try to catch his disciples by surprise. 
He was warning them before he went so they knew when it would come what was happening and what was going on. And he was telling them to warn them so they knew how to go through this pain and the suffering and persecution that would come by being representatives of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 is another great passage. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus... All right, we're going to do a raise hands. I'm going to prepare you so you can... Loosen up your shoulders and your arms. Okay, how many of you in this room desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Okay, I know, I know all of you would raise your hand. Some of you just lazier than others. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some of those who didn't raise your hand might have knew what was coming. Be like, I don't know if I want to like volunteer for where this is going. Is this a surprise? We don't just see it in one place. We see this throughout Scripture and in the New Testament. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Lay hold of the promises of God. Don't worry, the promise is unfolding. That's just part. John 15, 20 is another good verse to write down. It says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Raise your hand if you're greater than Jesus. This is an easy one. Good job. This is for all you lazy hand raisers out there. Good job. If you are greater than Jesus, you might avoid persecution. But if you are not greater than Jesus, you will be persecuted. Matthew 10, 24, in the passage we just read, says, if they call me the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they, if they maligned me and called, if they called Jesus Satan, why do you think they're going to let you off the hook? They're not. We don't have record of all that happened on this first missionary journey that Jesus sent his disciples out on and all that happened and what they did. It doesn't seem like all of the persecution that Jesus described in this passage here that we just read was, was happening as of yet, although it might have. We just don't have a lot of record of that. But it didn't seem like it took long for extreme persecution that was described to start taking effect. We see that when John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, during that day was beheaded. Jesus himself was crucified. Stephen was stoned. James was killed by Herod Agrippa. Church tradition tells us that all the disciples, except for, of course, um, Judas and the, uh, the Apostle John, were martyred for their faith. And that was just the Jewish persecution that was happening there. And, and then it transitioned into the Roman state-sanctioned persecution starting in 64 AD under Emperor Nero. And it lasted from 64 AD all the way to 304 AD. The Apostle Paul was, we think, caught up in that, that persecution of the Emperor Nero and was uh, killed, along with thousands of others of Christians. Um, under that, that like nearly 300-year period of time, there were 10 unique periods of persecution that happened for multiple years on each one. The last one, lasting from 292 to 304, under uh, Emperor Diocletian, he had four different edicts of persecution for Christians. The first one was that churches would be destroyed. Sacred scriptures would be burned. Christians of position would lose their honor and those of lower rank would uh, lose their liberty. 
made into slaves, and death was not pronounced as a penalty at this point in time, although many died. His second edict said that leaders of the Christian church were to be thrown into prison. The third edict says Christian leaders would not, who would not sacrifice to their gods would be thrown into prison, and they suffered cruel tortures. And then the fourth edict declared that all Christians everywhere should sacrifice on threat of being put to death in a war of extermination. For the first 300 years, Christianity was born into an incubator of persecution. The next thousand years were no different. In the adolescent age of Christianity, Christians spent their time in persecution. You can read a lot of these accounts in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's one of those books I'd encourage all of you to get it and read through because it's encouraging to see that we are not the first. That this is, the Bible is true. God told us that his people would be persecuted. I know, everybody's looking at me like I keep saying persecution too much. I know, it sounds discouraging. But hold on with me a little bit because there are blessings and there are promises that are good. Just hold on with me here. But I want, you, I want it to sink in that we've got to embrace persecution. So the first 300 years, the next 1,000 years in the adolescent age of Christianity, we can read about all the, the, not even all, a lot of Christians who were persecuted, men and women, and yes, even children who were persecuted for their faith and paid the ultimate price of death. And in this present age, today, you can go, and you can go to, there's a few different websites, there's a few different publications, Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors are a couple of good ones that will tell you about the stories of Christians today that are being persecuted for their faith in extreme ways. I want you to know this. A majority of the world's population live in countries that persecute Christians. Did you know that? A majority of the world's population live in countries that actively persecute Christians. It's not unusual to be persecuted for being a Christian. It's unusual if you're not. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary estimates that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia, and more than half of those died in the 20th century under fascist and communist regimes. They also estimate that 1 million Christians were killed between 2001 and 2010, and about 900,000 were killed from 2011 to 2020. That's a lot of people. It's easy to be somber when you hear those numbers. Do you think there's a single one of those martyrs who are somber about what they did right now, today? We need to contextualize how we think about persecution and martyrdom because this is not, as we're going to see later again, this is not a frowny face kind of thing. This is what, what did Stephen's face look like when he was martyred, when they were casting stones at him? What did Stephen's face look like? It shone. The glory of the Lord. It shone with the joy of the Lord. It's shown. I think that's what God wants for us and our faces when we are persecuted. It's easy for us to focus on martyrdom 
when we talk about persecution because it's the ultimate form of persecution. But there are many other types that are talked about in this passage. We're not going to go in depth into each one of them. But these are things that are happening, I think, in America. It's easy to think that persecution is just all these other places. But there are, there, even though it's not necessarily martyrdom and dying for faith, persecution is happening here in America. In this passage, it tells us what other forms of persecution can look like. Uh, it says in verse 17 that you'll be persecuted by the government. You will go to the courts. You'll go into court. That's happening in America. For standing up for your faith, people are going into the courts. It's happening. Religious persecution, also in verse 17, it says, you will be flogged in the synagogue. Now, I'm very thankful that we don't practice flogging as a form of church discipline anymore, but there's a lot of flogging that goes on in the religious realm. Some, one of the biggest persecutors of Christians uh, was not just other religions. It was the church itself throughout the course of history. That was a persecutor of those who stood up for the truth of what Scripture proclaimed. And so Jesus was not wrong when he was saying that you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will be persecuted, perhaps even, and I pray this is not true for us, but you could be persecuted in your own church for standing on the truth of God's word. That's what Jesus told us to expect. Later on in the, in the uh, Apostle Paul's letters to the churches, he told them that there will be wolves among you in the churches. Wolves are among you. So there's persecution from the government, there's religious persecution, and also he said there will be, in verse 21, he says there will be family betrayal. Fathers against their their children, children against their parents. This is all over the place, and this is happening right now in America. I have seen it in our church, other churches, it happens all the time. When Parents or children take a stand for God's word, stand on the truth of Scripture, refuse to call something that is evil good or something that is good evil. And you know what that does? Light and darkness don't hang out together. And that splits families. It splits families. And I've seen some, uh, I've seen some parents who are in pain because they, are, they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they're living out the truths of Scripture in their life and their own children have forsaken that. And it's driven a wedge between them and their parents. Jesus told us to expect that. I've seen also parents who are drawn away by their children, feeling that, that pain and the anguish that comes, and I can only imagine what that feels like, and having that wedge dri- driven between them and their children. And instead of being faithful to God's word, they turn away, compromise the gospel, and, so that they can have a relationship with their kids. I'm not being judgmental here. I'm just saying this is the truth of what happens. That's why later on in this passage, Jesus says, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And we see this is the price. This is the cost of discipleship here. So family betrayal, and ultimately in verse 22, he says, you'll be hated by all. Hated by all. I think it's interesting, a lot of times we as Christians like to talk about end times. You know, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back at the end of, uh, end of times and like the book of Revelation kind of stuff. And we talk about 
uh, the great tribulation and when the rapture is going to happen. And we talk about, you know, is, is Jesus going to come out come at the beginning of the tribulation and save Christians out of persecution? Or is he going to come in the middle where a Christian experienced three and a half years of persecution? Or is Jesus coming at the very end where Christians go all the way through persecution uh, before he comes and raptures them out of that? And it seems like without fail, I hear people in talking about this, and I'm not trying to go too far into eschatology today, but when we talk about it, it's really easy to say, you know, I've heard this over and over and over again. People will say, I can't believe that Jesus would expect his followers to go through this persecution. And I have to stop and say, I don't know what Jesus is going to do, by the way, for sure, with absolute certainty when he's going to come back in the tribulation. I want to make that clear. But I think it's perfectly consistent based on the whole rest of the New Testament and what Jesus has promised to us and other authors of the New Testament, that Jesus has warned us that persecution will come. It has been, it is, and it will continue through the end of ages, the end of days, I shouldn't say end of ages, end of our days on this earth. Persecution is a reality. Persecution is a reality. So let's turn a little corner here. Question is, is why a sheep? Why does Jesus call us to be sheep? Why not? If you knew there were wolves out there, again, fill in the blank. I could see being maybe an elephant. You know, they could stomp on some wolves. Wolves could still nip at their heels. There could still be a limited amount of pain and then the ankles and stuff, but then, you know, just a little gentle, you know, soft smush, crunch, problem solved. That'd be easy. Why sheep? Why not a lion? I mean, that would be kind of a cool one too. Why, why not a lion? And I think the reason why Jesus called his disciples to be sheep is because Jesus was a, I know that was kind of tricky. He was a shepherd too, but Jesus was a sheep. Jesus was a sheep. Have you thought about that? John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53, 7 says, he, referring to Jesus, was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, but oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus was a sheep. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 shows us this transition of God, Jesus being God, and yet taking on the form of man, and I think also of a sheep. It says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is God, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, of a man, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself from God to man, he humbled himself to being a sheep by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is, I think, crucial in our understanding of why Jesus asks us to be sheep. Because Jesus was a sheep, God wants us to be sheep also. Why? So people can see Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the passage we just read, the verse right before we read it, it says, 
have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. The same way we're, we're, not, we're not God, so we can't humble ourselves nearly as much as Christ humbled himself. But in the same way Jesus was God, became man, humbled himself, and became a sheep to the point of dying on the cross. Had this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We are men. And we just have one small step, if a step at all, to be humbled, to be like sheep, so that people can see Jesus. If Jesus became a lamb to show God's love and power of the gospel, why would we think that God would make us anything different when our job is to show people Jesus and declare the gospel? While Jesus was a lamb in ways we can never be a lamb in that he took away the sins of the world, it shouldn't surprise us that he has called us to be sheep since our lives are meant to point to the Lamb. Have you thought about that? That's why God wants us to be sheep, so we can point to the Lamb. When people come up and they're petting you, they're always fluffy, they're soft, he's gentle, he's lowly, he has power and authority, so gentle, so kind, so loving. It's hmm. persecuted and yet doesn't curse. Threatened and yet loves. Why? They're petting you and yet they're seeing Jesus, aren't they? Why sheep? Because Jesus was a sheep. Why persecution? Why couldn't we just be those sheep in the first part of Psalm 23 who were in the green pastures, in the still waters, with our souls restored? Verse 18 tells us, For my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. We are persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ, and to bear witness. This is part of our testimony. I won't even just say part. This is our testimony. This is our testimony. In Matthew 5, verses 1 through 14, well, in Matthew 5, we, we learn a lot about the Beatitudes. You know, it's like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, throw in a little joke here, the cheesemakers. That's what Wisconsiners like to say. Instead of the peacemakers, it's the cheesemakers. But I don't think that joke works as well in Michigan for some reason here. It talks about all the, those who are blessed, blessed by God. And it's not the haughty and the prideful and the mighty. It's the meek and the lowly. But in verse 10 specifically, it says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revel you and, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Falsely is key there on, on uh, just pointing out. Blessed are those who accuse you, uh, even though they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Okay, this is why we are not frowning when we talk about persecution. This is why. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he just talked all about you know, being blessed when you are persecuted and when you're being reveled by the world and falsely accused. And how in the midst of that we can rejoice and be glad 
In the midst of that, what's interesting is what follows immediately after these Beatitudes and this talk about persecution. He says, go and be salt and go and be a light. How do we do that? It's by being glad and rejoicing in the midst of persecution. That is the way God is glorified in our lives. That is the way people see the light. That is the way they taste the salt. John Piper on Wednesday night in our Desiring God study called it the tanginess. That's how people taste and see that the Lord is good and they see that truth being lived out in our lives. That's when they see us Again, being sheep, pointing to the Lamb. So why would Jesus call his followers, those he loved, to be willing to be persecuted to this degree? Why would he do that? And like it said in that verse we just read, it's because it is worth it. It is in our best interest and the best interest of everyone else around us. God wouldn't do it for any other reason. It's, in his, it's, it's for His glory. And part of His glory is He's good and He wants us to enjoy His glory with Him. It's in our best interest, in the best interest of everyone else. Uh, negatively put, it says, what profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Absolutely nothing. There is nothing else we can attain apart from God that would make us more happy and blessed. Nothing we can have apart from God that can make us more happy and blessed than Him. And there's nothing, vice versa side, there's nothing that we could lose that could be taken away from us, even life itself, that could possibly steal our joy and our blessing. Is that true? That we need to act like it's true. We have everything to gain. Everything to gain and nothing to lose. Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And it says, Then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells how much? All. Was there anything he had that was worth keeping that instead of finding the treasure that was in the field? No. He sold it all. Not only did he sell it all, he did it and he, it, he was joyful. There was no buyer's remorse in this one verse parable. He was not saddened by what he had given up. He was joyful. Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. It's, it's even crazier than like putting McDonald's and Fogo de Chao in the same sentence with each other. It's not even a comparison. We can't even liken the two. It's so ridiculous to even think we, can, we should spend time. It's not worthy to be compared to the glory. Our suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. And I love this passage in Isaiah 53, 11. It says, out of the anguish of his soul. It's talking about Jesus. It's a continuation of the Isaiah passage we, we read earlier about him being the lamb and the sheep. It says, out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. He shall be satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, he can find satisfaction. 
and joy and blessedness. Why? By his knowledge. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus knew what the cost of his persecution, what that bought, was the righteousness for many. Now, we're not purchasing people's righteousness. Jesus did that on the cross. But when we're going and being persecuted and yet rejoice because we know that through that we can be satisfied because Jesus is bringing the lost to a saving knowledge of Him because He's the ultimate sheep. He's the ultimate sacrifice. And all we need to do as sheep is point to Him. And persecution is a big part of that. Mark 10, 28-31, Peter was talking about all these different things that he had given up. He said, so we've left everything, Jesus, and followed you. We've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come, you will receive eternal life. Do you hear? Did, he get, did Peter really give up anything? No, hundredfold. Jesus promised blessing far beyond anything he ever gave up. It's not worthy to be compared. And so the question again is, is it worth it? Yes. It's so worth it. It's easy for us to forget in, in this passage. It's really easy for our human minds to look and see all the bad things that are to happen in the midst of persecution. You know, being brought to court, being flogged in the synagogues, uh, you know, uh, being hated by your family and, and being hated by all and thrown out of town. It's easy to focus on all the, the things that are wrong and, again, sit in the pews and have a somber face. And I think that's what Satan wants us to do when we talk about persecution. But if we do that, we fail to see the blessing that God has built into this passage that we just read that I'm not sure if anyone really heard. And it took me a couple of times reading it. And I was like, oh, this is packed. This is one of the most encouraging things I've read in a long time, even though it's all about persecution, seemingly. In verse 16, you know what it says? We're blessed by being sent by Christ. When my girls tell each other to do something, they usually, you know, aren't super excited about do it. But if like, uh, I don't know, Kezzy, we'll use Kezzy. Kezzy's pretty cool. Kezzy was like, hey girls, will one of y'all go and do something? You know what? My girls will be like, yeah, Kezzy. You know, they're all excited about do it because it's blessed to be sent by Kezzy. Sorry, Kezzy. You get my point? I was going to use myself as an example, but I was like, ah, I don't know if that would work too well. It's we are blessed to be sent. It's joyful to be sent by someone of importance, isn't it? We are sent by Jesus. That's a blessing in itself is that he has chosen us and he has called us. Verse 18, we have the blessing of being a witness for Jesus' sake. We are witnesses. And as witnesses, we have the blessing 
of seeing people restored in the relationship with God and with each other. That is a blessing. Verse 19, we have the blessing of God's peace. It's like, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. We have peace that God will provide. Verse 20, it says, we have the blessing that the Spirit of the Father is speaking through you. I have spoken a lot of words in my life, and I can't think that the, the whole sum of all of them would be special in any sort of way if only God for one moment in time could use me to speak in and through me the words that he has. Do you think you would be blessed to have the power of the, the, the star breather God, the creator of all things, speaking in and through you? Do you think you would be blessed? Do you think those around you would be blessed? Absolutely. Verse 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Enduring persecution, you do it. You go through persecution, you will be saved. That's a great promise. We have the promised blessing of knowing that Jesus is returning, verse 23, and all things will be set right. Verse 24, the blessing that we will be like our teacher. We're not greater than, but Jesus says we will be like him. If we are going to be like him as sheep, Jesus says, you will be like me in my glory. We are like him as sheep. We will be like him as glory. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14, it says, you will obtain and share in my glory. Do you think that's a blessing? Absolutely. Verse 25, blessing of knowing that our persecution is a sign that we are part of Jesus' household. Verse 26, blessing of knowing that the truth will be made known. All those lies, all those falsehoods, all those accusations, truth will be known. Truth will come to light. That is an encouragement, and that is a blessing. And then Matthew 10, 32, it says, the blessing that Jesus we go through persecution in verse 32. It says, the blessing that Jesus will confess your name to the Father. We make a big deal about the price that we pay to confess Jesus' name. But let me ask you this. Who paid the bigger price? You to confess Jesus' name or Jesus to confess your name? Who paid more? Jesus. No comparison. It will never cost you more to confess Jesus' name than it cost him to confess yours. And that's why the great missionary David Livingston was able to say at the end of his life, I have sacrificed nothing. Nothing. Zero. So application. A couple of things to remember. I know I'm going along, so I'll wrap it up quick here. Things to remember to help get us through persecution is Jesus says, be wise as serpents. Usually we, we uh, associate serpents with, something, you know, with, with Satan stuff, but he's not, he's not saying that at all. He's saying being wise as serpents. A lot of times when we talk about sheep, pastors talk about sheep, what do they say sheep are? Sheep are stupid. God, write this down really big. God does not want you to be a stupid sheep. And that doesn't mean he doesn't want you to be a sheep. He doesn't want you to be a stupid, adjective kind of sheep. He wants you to be a wise sheep. We need to start talking about each other as sheep 
and stupid and putting them together and making it sound like it's okay. God has intended wisdom for you and for me as sheep. Same way Jesus as a sheep demonstrated wisdom in, in, his, in his life on this earth. When, the, when, the, uh, uh, when Satan came to him, tried to trip them all up, Jesus knew the word of God and he quoted it to him. When the, the religious leaders came to him and tried to trip him up and said, hey, you know, should we pay taxes? I mean, that, think of all the different things, the political conversations of our day and, and how we try to trip each other up and we, people try to trip us up. And Jesus totally bypassed it and said, give unto the Caesars, Caesars, and give unto God that which is God's. That was the message. Oh, wow, we know how to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but how do we give to God what is God's? Jesus showed wisdom as a sheep, demonstrated that, quoted scripture, and challenged people with the truth. So be wise sheep, not stupid sheep. Jesus wasn't a stupid sheep. Don't you go be a stupid sheep. How's that for application? And then secondly, be innocent as doves. Verse 16 says that we need to be as innocent as doves. Get this. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your sins is meaningless if he was guilty. The only reason Jesus' sacrifice on the cross meant something is because he was innocent. That truth is true for us as well. Holiness matters in persecution. Persecution means nothing. Zilch. If you deserve it. If you're being a jerk, if you're being prideful and arrogant, if you're wishing evil on those that God has called you to, persecution means nothing if we deserve it. That's why 1 Peter 2.20 says, For what credit is it when you sin and are being beaten for it and you endure? But if when you, are, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There's no credit if you sin and you're persecuted because of it. It's only when we are innocent before God and man. Holiness matters if our persecution is going to be a testimony to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think we need to add this doctrine of persecution to our doctrinal statement. I think every church in the world needs to have one of their statements of faith talking about that as a Christian, you will be persecuted. Maybe we can include it in our CBC 101 class. We want Calvary to be a safe place for everyone, and we do. But God tells us that there are wolves amongst us in our church. And he's telling us that we are, he's sending us out as sheep amongst wolves. So the warning is, this whole church business is dangerous, but... It's worth it. It's worth it. We don't have to frown. We can face persecution with joy because of the blessing that God has promised us through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? John 16, last verse. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world.